Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. We are continuing, we're in the middle, however you want to say it, of a series right now that kind of relates to room robbers called grave robbers. And last week, Michael kicked that off. But we're taking this series from a book called The Grave Robber, written by a guy named Mark Batterson. It's a pretty cool book. You should check it out if you like to read. I don't know if you guys check out books anymore. But you should definitely read it. For real, it's a cool book. And we've been learning about the miracles of Jesus, specifically three of them. And I wish we had more time in this series to talk about all the miracles. But last week, Michael introduced the series by talking about Jesus the first miracle that he did, turning water into wine. And he had six mason jars up here, six little clay jars. And he talked about how Jesus took something so ordinary, so basic as H2O, right, water, and transformed it into something incredible, something extraordinary. And how Christ can do the same in your life. He can transform you. And tonight we're going to move from that first miracle into the second miracle that Christ did. But before we get into the text, I want you to write something down if you're taking notes. And if, even if you're not, I want you to write this down. When you meet the right person in the right place at the right time, God might be setting you up for something incredible. I'm going to say it again. When you meet the right person in the right place at just the right time, God might be setting you up for something incredible. You're like, Seth, what do you mean by that? Everything you do, everywhere you go, every person you meet in your life has a purpose and a reason. And it all fits into God's grand plan, his master plan. Now, we call that a crazy word that I, I've been trying to pronounce since I started reading this book. It's going to come on the screen for you. Supernatural synchronicities. Everybody say synchronicities. Hey, great job. I was going to make fun of you all for, for tearing that word up. I read that book 30 times. I read that word 30 times, and I just figured out how to pronounce that word. Supernatural synchronicities. Moments in our lives, that sounds really big, really weird, all it is is moments in our lives where God has ordained us in a specific place to meet a specific person to change their life. And if you're a believer in this room today, then you experience supernatural synchronicities all the time. And tonight we're going to see how Jesus was right in the middle of one of those supernatural synchronicities. So let's go to the Bible. We're going to start in verse 46 of chapter 4 of John. It says, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Jesus goes back to the city that he'd just been in. How do we know that? Because it says once more. Again, Jesus goes back to Cana. The place where he had just done what Michael talked about last week, his first miracle, turning water into wine. The same place. And, and I think about Cana after Jesus did this miracle and, and what the buzz was and what people were saying and thinking. Some people were probably really confused. Others were like, this guy is psycho. He's a freak. Like one of those magicians. I mean, that's, that's weird, right? Nobody turns water into wine. Other people are like, this guy is a demon. Let's, let's kill him right now. And then others are like, 
this is the Messiah. Like, they're like paparazzi following Jesus around. They love him. They can't get enough of him. And so why would Jesus want to go back to Cana when this buzz is going on? People are looking for him. People are talking. Why would Jesus want to go back? But he goes back to Cana for a specific reason. It's not by accident. And it wasn't because he forgot something when he was there a couple weeks ago or a couple days ago. It wasn't because he wanted to see his family again or his mom again. It wasn't because a disciple got lost and he had to go find him. It wasn't because, I don't know, whatever reason that I could think of. Jesus went back to Cana because he had an emotional attachment to that place. Because he had just done his first miracle. I don't know why I'm pointing over here, but his miracle is over here, I guess. He had just done his first miracle. He just began his ministry. And this place has value to him. He's emotionally attached. He's going back to remember everything that had happened. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of time, almost two to three times a year, at this little place called Walt Disney World. I love Walt Disney World. I've been there probably 20 times, for real. Like, we grew up going to Disney. My cousin, his name was going to be Mickey, but then my, my uncle decided to name him Donald instead. For real. No joke. My family's nuts. We love Disney. I used to go there all the time. I haven't been in two years, and my poor wife, God bless her, she has never been in her entire life. And for you out there who has never been to Disney World, I'm praying for you. It is an experience you have to have. Like, for real. I know it's a long way away, but you got to go. My wife and I are going soon. I promise you that. And when we go back and I step foot into Magic Kingdom, I step foot into Epcot, I step foot in a resort, a rush of emotions and feelings and memories of my childhood is going to come back to me. Because that place has value to me. And a lot of things happen there. I could tell you stories about crazy things that happen there, good and bad. But that place, Disney World, has value to me. And maybe there's something or somewhere like that for you. But for Jesus, it's Cana. He loves that place. And he's not going there by accident. Jesus was in the right place. Let's finish verse 46. Let's see what happens. Jesus is in Cana. And it says, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. I want to point something out. Capernaum. Different city, right? Cana is where Jesus is. Capernaum is where this sick boy is. Two different cities. We'll come back to that. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So this royal official was in the city of Cana from Capernaum doing probably business Whatever his job was, which we're going to talk about in a second, he was there hanging out, and he heard that Jesus, the guy who had just turned water into wine, was in the same city. He was back. And this man's like, holy cow, if he's really here, I've got to take advantage of this. I've got to go talk to this guy. I've got to go talk to him and see if he can heal my son, because he just turned water into wine. If he's a fake, so what? At least I tried. And so he finds Jesus, and we see a picture of the man begging Jesus to heal his son. He's begging him. Now, this royal official, I want to tell you who he is. The royal official was a Roman citizen. He worked for the Roman government. And when Rome, who 
conquered the world, okay, who owned the world at this time period, when they conquered different areas, different regions, different nations, they would put governors and people in charge of these areas. And those governors and those other officials would report to Caesar, the ruler. And so this royal official was probably one of those guys. He was a politician who reported to Caesar. If you report to Caesar, you're pretty important. So he has every authority, every power, every wealth, every respect because of fear, most likely, that Caesar had. He had it, this royal official. So people didn't really like him. People stayed clear of him. People made sure they didn't say anything wrong around him. Imagine if you met the person who was in direct response or direct connection with the president. If you're around that person and you say something like, I don't know, I hate America, okay, that person's probably going to tell the president and you're going to be deported and named a terrorist. All right, that's not good. So when you're around that person, you're going to not say a word about anything because you don't want the president to know your name or what you said. And when they're around this official, nobody says a word. People stay clear of him because his power is very, very large. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, was in the Jewish culture. He was a Jew. And Jesus was also what we call a rabbi, which means a teacher. He taught religious things. He taught the Bible, a very esteemed religious teacher. That's what the people saw him as, aside from the Messiah. And these two guys, in both of their cultures, were well-respected. They were held highly. They were valued. And communication between a religious man and a royal official in that culture never, ever happened. Like, never. Like, these guys, they didn't get along. They didn't talk. They didn't agree. So they just avoided each other. Like, if they passed each other, it would be like the other person didn't exist. They hated each other. Never talked. Yet we see a moment here in John before the miracle in a supernatural synchronicity. As crazy as that word is, we see a moment where Jesus, the rabbi, meets the royal official and the crowd is like, what in the world? Like That never happens. That, what are you doing? Both sides are like backing up. Like The disciples are like, dude, man, you can't do that. The people are like, that royal official's crazy. God puts us in moments to meet people who we never thought we would ever come in contact with. There was a scientist who did a study, and the study was this. It was called the small world phenomenon. Small world phenomenon. And the point of the study was basically to show how connected the world was. To show how everybody over time had become more and more connected. And so when he did this study, he did his research, he proved and he showed, follow me, that every two people on average, two complete strangers, if they met and they talked for an hour or two hours, they would find that they're only separated by six different acquaintances. And if you're looking at me right now and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, I said the same thing when I read this passage, when I read the book. But here's what I'm saying. Imagine the person beside you right now is a complete stranger. And they may be. So that's great. Meet them. You'll know somebody new. 
All right, do that. Now, imagine they're a complete stranger. Never met them in your life. You meet them. You say, hey, let's go get some coffee. You guys spend the rest of the night getting some, not all night long. That would be kind of weird. But the rest of the night, after this, not the rest of the night, after this, for like an hour or two, you guys go talk. You hang out. And you find out, complete strangers, that holy cow, I know him who's no, who knows her, who knows him, who knows him, who knows her, who knows him, who knows you. Wow. Talk about a small world. Now, I've got another illustration I want to show you, but before I do that, I need my magical hand to appear right now because I'm a magician. There it is. Look at that. It's amazing. Thank you, sir. Magical hand just comes in whenever I need it. I love it. Thank you, sir. You're, you're gone. Goodbye. All right. Was it a man or a woman? It looked like a man's arm. Hope it wasn't a woman. All right. So, how many of you guys use Facebook? Facebook's great. I, you know, I don't use Facebook anymore either. When I was in high school, I loved Facebook. I really did. And when I got into college, I was like, yes, I can use Facebook now because I'm a college student. Because back then, only college students could use it. And I was like, I don't really care about Facebook anymore. I love Twitter and Instagram. And I only tweet, honestly, whenever I want to talk about sports. Isn't that right, Chase Cardiff? Yes. And, uh, and the Panthers, man. Go Panthers. Um, and I Instagram all the time. But Facebook, Facebook is interesting. I want to show you something on Facebook. If I can plug this in here. I'm struggling right now. Facebook is very interesting. All right. It should come on the screen for you. If you go to Facebook and you search for people, random people, you can find somebody that you have no idea who they are, but somehow you're connected to them. Let me show you. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm going to take the name John Smith. All right. Pretty, pretty average first name. Pretty average last name. John Smith. I've never met a John Smith in my life, like ever. Never met a John Smith, aside from the one in Pocahontas, okay? Never, ever met a John Smith. So I'm going to search John Smith here. If your name's John Smith, then let's meet after, because I've never met you before. John Smith. There are six John Smiths before I even hit Seymour Results that I am a mutual friend with. That's weird. Seymour Results. People. Yeah, that's, that's John Smith. I scroll down. And if I kept scrolling, there are over 20 John Smiths that I know. And tonight, if I wanted to know all those John Smiths, I could do it, right? I could call the mutual friend and say, hey, give me John's number, and I could call John and get to know John. Social media has shrunk our world even more. What just happened? I got messages. I'm done with that. That's distracting. Social media has shrunk our world even more. You're like, said, why are you showing us Facebook? Why are you talking about this? Here's why. Because you never know who you're next to. You never know how connected you are with the cashier or with the person you meet at the mall or the person you bump into going out the door or the homeless guy on the street corner, like for real. You never know how connected you are to somebody because our world is getting smaller and our God is big. And he orchestrates every little detail. And he's put each and every one of you in moments where you can meet someone and change their life and not even know it. Let's go on in the scripture. Jesus responds to the man. And here's what he says. Unless you people see signs or wonders, Jesus told them, you'll never believe. And what he's saying is, this is a whole other message in itself. But what he's saying is, unless you guys see me do miracles, you're not going to believe that I'm the Messiah. 
Like you're not going to believe that I am Jesus Christ unless I have to prove it to you. And what that makes me think is, and this is hopefully challenges you because it challenged me, if Christ was here today, would I believe him and who he says he is on mere faith? Or would it, would it have to be miracles that prove his existence to me? Because the disciples even needed miracles. They didn't believe him. So then Jesus stops talking, and in verse 49, the royal official talks again, and he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, if I was here and I had a kid, which I don't yet, hopefully I do soon. Uh, Erica's not pregnant yet, so, uh, but one day she will be. Uh, and so I'm going to have a baby, right? And I'll know, like, I will know what it means to be a father. And I'll know what this guy's experiencing. But right now in this moment, He's freaking out because Jesus is giving a lecture about miracles and about knowing who he is. And this guy's like, at least he should be, like, dude, my kid's about to die. Like, will you please do something about it? I came to you. This is kind of awkward. I shouldn't be talking to you. This is a very unlikely situation. I'm really feeling kind of weird right now. Please do something. And that's what I would do if I was a dad whose son was dying. But this man does something Incredible. And it blows my mind when I understood what he said. He said the most important word in this entire passage, and it was sir. He said, sir, growing up, my parents encouraged me, more like forced me, to use the words, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. Like I had to treat authority and people who were older than me with respect by saying sir and ma'am. I didn't have a choice, and so I did. And if I didn't, my dad would literally tear me apart. Like he would go Adrian Peterson on me, for real. That was a bad joke. I should have said that. I'm sorry. If you guys don't know what that joke meant, I was debating on whether not to say that. I said it. That's hilarious. Go look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. My dad would spank me, okay. He wouldn't abuse me. My dad didn't abuse me. Don't, don't call uh, Child Protective Services. My dad would spank me if I didn't say sir or ma'am because it was a sign of respect. They trained me to respect people by saying sir. A simple word. And today I still do it. I still give authority to people in my life by saying and respect by saying yes sir. I'll do it. Yes sir. Yes ma'am. And here the royal official says the word sir and it means a whole lot more then than it does today. And here's the scene I want you to catch. Here's the scene I want to paint for you. The royal official is in Cana doing what he does as a politician. He has all the respect and all of the authority in the world. I mean, he's a Roman politician. He's a Roman official. At the snap of his finger, he could have thrown Jesus in jail if he wanted to in this culture. He could have killed Jesus and probably gotten away with it. And eventually, they did. This guy had a lot of power. But what he does is he comes to Jesus and he gets down on his knees, which is a sign of respect in itself. And he says, sir, giving all authority to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I know you have authority in the spiritual realm, in the supernatural realm, which is all that matters. My authority here means nothing. And what that shows me is That in order for you to be used by God in a supernatural synchronicity to meet the right person at the right place in the right time, you've got to be humble. And the opposite 
of being humble, it's being prideful. And I don't have to call you out, I don't have to say raise your hand. Every single one of us at some point are guilty of pride. I have to constantly pray, God humble me. Because what pride does is it builds a wall between you and the supernatural synchronicity. The moment he's trying to use you in, it builds this wall. And so you get in that situation, you're beside that person, you're in the moment, the God-ordained moment, and God just can't use you because you're not usable. Because you're too worried about who you're beside or who's near you. I'm too much better. I'm too much more good looking. I'm really pretty. I'm really smart. There now, I'm not going to talk to them. But in this moment, he gives all authority to Jesus. And Jesus says, go, in verse 50, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. That's a lot of faith right there. I just sounded really country. That's a lot of faith right there. 51, when he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Holy cow, your boy's alive. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Verse 53. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. The guy gets in his chariot, his bodyguards are beside him, he takes Jesus at his word, he goes home, and on his way home, 20 plus miles away at Capernaum, a messenger meets him. If a messenger was going to come meet him, it's pretty important. And the messenger's like, good news, your son's alive. I don't know what you did, but he's living. It's crazy. We don't know how to explain it. And he thinks and he says, you know what, I don't know how to explain it. What time was he healed? And the guy says, oh, well, it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he realizes, the royal official realizes that it was the same moment that Jesus said, go, your son will live. Talk about the right time. Not a minute too late, not a minute too early, Jesus heals the boy from 20 miles away. That's incredible. Don't even know who this kid is. Don't even know where he is. He heals him. When Erica and I, my wife, began dating, um, I was really attracted to her. She was a beautiful blonde. She was awesome. She was athletic. She still is. And I was like ready to date her. And so I did something really stupid, and what I did was I Facebooked her to ask if she wanted to be my girlfriend. And guys, I'm going to give you a clue. Don't ever ask a girl out over Facebook or social media or text. Here's why. Not because you look like a fool. That's another reason. The reason why I want to tell you not to do that is because it gives the girl time to respond. Girls, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm telling your secret here. It gives her time to respond so she can think about it before she has to give you an answer. But if you do it in person, she's got to give a response. She's got no time to think about it. Pretty smart. I screwed up. I asked her out on Facebook. She had a couple days to think about it. She was asking her friends about it. Some girls in her dorm, they were kind of like, eh, I don't really like him. He's kind of weird. Cute, but cute, but not really your type. Like the ooh video. And uh, this girl spoke up. God bless this girl. She saved my life and my marriage. She spoke up and she said, Hey, hey, Erica, what's his name? She said, his name's Seth. And she was like, you know what, I think, yeah, I think eight months ago, I rode in a car with him, going somewhere with a bunch of people, going to hang out in another city, and I spent a couple hours with him, and he's a pretty funny guy. He's also really nice and really cool. And Erica was like, all right, cool, I'll date him. 
And now we're married. It's incredible. Praise God for that supernatural synchronicity eight months before then. Thank you, thank you. But catch this, catch this. Here's the cool part. Literally, true story, eight months before this girl moved into a dorm with Erica, they had just met, just become friends. Eight months before, I rode in a car with this girl, not even knowing who she was or not even caring about who she was, never caring to talk to her again. And eight months later, going back and forth, eight months later, she meets my future wife and tells her she should date me. Guys, God wants to use you, and he may be using you right now, but some of you may not see it. You may not see the effects of your supernatural synchronicity until eight months, eight years, or, or 20 miles down the road. When the father realized he was in a supernatural synchronicity. Holy cow. And the verse isn't over. And this is the part that gives me chills. Here's what it says. So he and his whole household believed. He and his whole household believed. The entire family not just the mom, not just the dad, not just the kids. Everybody believed that Jesus was the Messiah because of a miracle that Jesus did in a supernatural synchronicity in a moment where two guys shouldn't have met, but they did. And Jesus healed a boy and it ended up changing an entire family's life. Some of you, you were saved at Beach Retreat. You were saved at Fall Riot. Maybe in this room. Maybe at Bible study. And you've done it. You've Proved that God is using you by bringing your families and your friends and your girlfriend or boyfriend to church and they got saved. Talk about being in the right place at the right time with the right person. But all of us, all of us have to deal with a few things before we can be used. And in order for you to be used in a supernatural synchronicity, you need two things. First, you've got to get rid of the pride. The royal official was so humble. He said, you've got more authority than me. Get rid of your pride. Destroy it because you have to have humility to meet a person who may need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, how's your spiritual life? To check it, are you reading the word and are you praying? I know it's simple, but it's true. Someone wise, don't miss this, someone wise once told me, the larger the rock, the larger the ripple. When you take a rock and you throw it into the water, it creates movement. Water moves. And the larger that rock is, the bigger the movement, the longer the movement. And my question to you right now in this moment is, how's your ripple? Because the truth is, is that the length of your ripple determines the depth and the size of your rock. It determines your spiritual life. How's your ripple? How are you impacting others around you? Tonight, some of you have got to deal with a bunch of things right now after we're finished 
and we sing some more worship songs, you've got to deal with some stuff and give it to God so that you can be used to honestly change the world. Because you never know who you know. And for some of you, you can't be used. You know why? Because you've never been transformed. And so God can't use you because you're not a child of His. He can only use His children. He's going to use His children. And tonight, you need to be transformed, like Michael talked about last week. So with every head bowed and every eye closed.